everyone. Welcome to this episode of Come Follow Me, Disciples' Journey. This episode will cover chapters 12, 13, and 14 from 3rd Nephi. So as I mentioned in the introduction episode this week, this these chapters mirror uh, Matthew's 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount. Something that I am a little daunted by uh, in in terms of studying, and, but, and even more so presenting to other people to you. And so I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to even feign like I'm going to be comprehensive here uh, at all, because there's so much here, so much doctrine, so much truth. Uh, and as we go throughout Third Nephi, especially just with Christ teaching and um, speaking to the people in the land bountiful, this, I feel even more inadequate than the rest of the year in terms of presenting information to you all. And so what I want to just try to do is really just point out a few things that I've learned, things that I noticed, things that, through my studies and quotes and other and um, that I've compiled, share them with you and hope that it spurs you to uh, recognizing and realizing something maybe new to you, but then also helping you to uncover your own, uh, uncover truth for your own. Um, on your own. So, uh, as we jump into chapter 12, and just in terms of the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple here in 3rd Nephi in general, uh, President James E. Faust said, The Savior's transcendent message in the Sermon on the Mount is of burning bush importance to all of us. But seek ye first to build up the kingdom of God, kingdom of God and to establish his righteousness. This message needs to penetrate into our hearts and souls. As we accept this message, we are taking our personal stand in this life. So just to underscore what I was saying, the importance here of, of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon at the Temple here. And so that's the first thing, actually, in terms of my noticing here, is where were these two things given? Sermon on the Mount. And as we know, a mountain or a high place can be synonymous with uh, the Temple. And then... In the land bountiful, there no no synonym needed. The, his discourse was given at the temple, and this, I think, sermon is for the temple. It's for a temple worshiping people. It's for a covenant making people. Um, and so, as we get in, and as you look at the well, back up the. Matthew 5 especially is known as the Beatitudes, a portion of it, right? It's, it's what is, what, what are the Beatitudes? It's Greek for blessings. It's because, because Christ says, blessed are they, blessed are they who mourn and blessed are the, uh, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed, blessed Beatitudes. And this, and so when I say this is for a, co- a covenant making people, when I read these, especially the the first several verses, what I see is the covenant path. I see the gospel, faith, and repentance, and baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so I'll show you what I mean here. So um, in verse, I'll start in verse 3, and I'm actually going to end up backing up a little bit here. But verse 3, Yea, blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So... Here we get, blessed are the poor in spirit. The first thing I thought, I think of, is on the heels of 3rd Nephi chapter 9, uh, and and Christ, and 3rd Nephi 9 and 10, and Christ saying, come unto me, and then telling telling them to no longer offer up burnt sacrifices, but to offer up a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So I think of a poor in spirit as a contrite spirit, and I compare, and I, I think of humility and being teachable, and looking unto a teacher, and in so doing, and that and that's my line of thought. Where I get to is I get to faith that by having faith in Jesus Christ, we can have. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Also, side note: I told you I'd point out a few of these things in the Third Nephi account. It says, "Who come unto me." Matthew 5 does not say that. It just says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in the third Nephi account, Christ explicitly says, Who come unto me. Next, he says, 
And again, blessed are all they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When I think of this, I think of mourning in a godly sorrow sense. And godly sorrow is related to repentance and the penitent. And so, who will be comforted? Those who repent. They're not just mourning for no reason. Everyone who mourns, the wicked the wicked will also mourn. We see that in the Book of Mormon that... Um, in, in a, I think of Mormon chapter 2 when Mormon sees the people uh, mourning and he thinks, okay, they're ready to repent and this is great, but then he just realizes it's because they're sad that they aren't prospering in their wickedness. So mourning of its, in and of itself is not a virtue, but when we're mourning for our sins and have a godly sorrow, that leads us to repent. And when we do that, then we shall be comforted. So we have faith and repentance, and then we say, And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, we know that the earth shall be renewed and receive its paradisical, glo- paradisical glory, and will be the celestial kingdom. And those who are worthy uh, of the celestial kingdom will inherit that kingdom, right? Well, what do we know is the gateway to that is baptism. So, uh, it, and it takes meekness to be baptized and blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And maybe, maybe this is just me, but what I see so far is faith and repentance. I see baptism and blessed are all they who shall, who do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled with the Holy ghost. And what's the next in, in terms of the gospel progression and the covenant path, faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy ghost as we seek to be filled with hunger and thirst, as we hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I don't think that I'm overreaching here because in terms of recognizing the covenant path and the gospel from third, or excuse me, from, yeah, third Nephi chapter 11, 21 through uh, chapter 12, verse two, the savior. So leading into this, what is he, what was he saying just prior to then giving this sermon? He mentions baptism 19 times. So I think this is a great place to kind of back up just a second and go back as we talk about the blessed and the the Beatitudes because he goes on and there's more. Um, But there's two additional blesseds, Beatitudes as it were, uh, in 3 Nephi that are not in Matthew 5. And they come from verse 1. Uh. He, Christ, stretched forth his hand unto the multitude and cried unto them, saying, Blessed are ye, if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve. And again, another thing you'll notice is that blessed are what? Blessed are the meek, for they shall get something. But it's it's blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall get something. This is an if-then, and that is, that's a covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is if you, my servants, my children do something, then I will do something. Then you receive this. That's a covenant. If you give heed to under the, the words of these twelve whom I have chosen, then you are blessed. And then later down the line, and still in verse 1 it says, uh, I will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized. Those are the two additional Beatitudes. Blessed are those who listen to the apostles and the prophets and give heed to their words. And blessed are they who shall believe in Christ and be baptized. So two additional Beatitudes staring right at us. I had never noticed that until this this time sitting down and studying. that there, it's, He says, blessed are ye and blessed are ye. And then you go down and then you get into, um, maybe it's just because I was so focused on like, where does Matthew 5 start? It starts tech, like really in like verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, cool. But I, I just completely glossed over the other blesseds. So in talking about giving heed to the apostles, Elder Holland said, the, apost- the apostolic and prophetic foundation of the church was to bless in all times, but especially in times of adversity or danger, times when we might feel like children, confused or disoriented, perhaps a little fearful, times in which the devious hand of men or the maliciousness of the devil would attempt to unsettle or mislead. 
against such times as come in our modern day, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve are commissioned by God and sustained by you as prophets, seers, and revelators. Such a foundation in Christ was and is always to be a protection. In such days as we are now in and will more or less always be, the storms of life shall have no power over you. So we'll move on, though, and just talk about a few other things here. So uh, one thing is this. There are, in terms of the Beatitudes, as they sit in Matthew and then also in, in Third Nephi, so excluding the two additional, uh, it's interesting because there's four that have to do with ourself and four that have to do with other people. So blessed are the poor in spirit. That's us. Having a contrite spirit. Blessed are all they who mourn. That's us. That's inside of us and dealing with us. Blessed are all the, they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Again, us. Blessed are all the pure in heart. Now with other people, blessed are the meek. Being meek uh, has to do with the way that we respond to other people. Uh, blessed are the merciful, offering mercy to to those around us. Blessed are the peacemakers, making peace and being kind no matter our situation. Blessed are all they who are persecuted for my namesake. Again, the way that we interact with other people. Um, from President Hinckley about being merciful. He said, let us be more merciful. Let us get the arrogance out of our lives, the conceit and the egotism. Let us be more compassionate, gentler, filled with forbearance and patience, and a greater measure of respect one for another. In so doing, our very example will cause others to be more merciful. And we shall have greater claim upon the mercy of God, who in his love will be generous towards us. And President uh, Nelson um, let's see. Uh, he talked about being peacemakers. Peace can prevail only when that natural inclination to fight is superseded by self-determination to live on a loftier level. Coming unto Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace is the pathway to peace on earth and goodwill among men. He made a promise to us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So, Though that takes to, to, as President Hinckley talked about, being merciful. That's a decision. That's a choice we have to make every day in every situation to offer mercy. Uh, and I think it's related to what President Nelson t- um, taught um, in a talk actually called Blessed Are the Peacemakers. He's, he taught that it can be easy to return railing for railing, but it takes a decision on our part to live on a loftier level, to live the higher law that Jesus Christ came. That's what he's teaching is this higher law. And remember, back in 3 Nephi chapter 11, he said, Behold, this is not my doctrine to stir up the hearts of men with, uh, with anger one against another. The spirit of contention is not of him. He taught that very clearly in 3 Nephi chapter 11, and he continued that in chapter 12 here by saying, Blessed are the peacemakers. If, we, if, if Jesus Christ is our captain the one who we claim to follow, then we have to also remember that his other another name for him is the Prince of Peace. And I say this as someone who honestly struggles with this because there are things that I feel very strongly about, things that I feel need to be fought for. And it's not to say that we shouldn't defend the gospel and defend truth. But... There are things, you know, in terms of just, uh, I don't know, without being too specific, I'll just say current modern events that are, and that are happening that I feel very strongly about and that I feel justified in my strong feelings about. But what I have to think about is is how I'm reacting. Is that what a peacemaker would do? Is that what the Prince of Peace would have me do? And and maybe there are good things. Maybe there are better things to fight, you know, on a scale. Maybe they are good. Maybe they're even better than good. But in so engaging with other people about these things, am I neglecting the best thing? And that is to harbor and... Um, nurture peace and to invite others to come unto Christ and to stand up for the truth of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the way that Satan gets us, he doesn't get us 
to go from best to worst. He gets us to take our focus from best to better. And now we've neglected the best things, the gospel of Jesus Christ, offering mercy, being a peacemaker. For we've, we've sacrificed those things for the best things. And now we're on the best things. He'll get us to focus a little bit on a few good things. And then on a few bad things. And then before you know it, the best things seem so far out of reach and so far away and so out of the our line of sight that it, that it seems hopeless to get back. Now, it never is hopeless, but that's the way that Satan works, right? Is he gets us to just change our shift, shift our focus ever so slightly. And as if you've been listening the last several weeks and throughout this year, you'll know that I've talked about where is our focus, where are we looking I mean, even just last week, where were the people looking? They didn't, they didn't understand the words from God, the Father, to hear his words, and then to recognize that they needed to hear Christ's words. They didn't understand that until their focus was looking up at him. And so, Christ, so Satan knows that if he can get us to look away figuratively with our spiritual eyes, that we'll lose sight of that. And then it's harder to hear. But, it, but if we can stay focused on it, and Christ teaches this in, in chapter 13, that if uh, that the light of the body is the eye, if therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. If we can focus on the light, then the whole rest of our body, the re- everything else takes care of itself. I want to be sure to get to some quotes. I'm going to jump into some of those now. Uh, Blessed are they that mourn. Elder Spencer J. Condi. I talked about this. He said, The Beatitudes may be viewed as a recipe for righteousness with incremental steps, beginning with the poor in spirit who come unto Christ. The next step is the celestial direction. In the celestial direction is to mourn, especially for our sins, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to, salva- to salvation. Uh, and moving on into just another quote here about being meek. Uh, President Spencer W. Kimball said, If if the Lord was meek and lowly and humble, then to become humble, one must do what he did in boldly denouncing evil, bravely advancing righteous works, courageously meeting every problem, becoming the master of himself and the situations about him, and being near oblivious to personal credit. Humility is not pretentious, presumptuous, nor proud. It is not weak, vacillating, or servile. Humble and meek properly suggest virtues, not weaknesses. They suggest a consistent mildness of temper and an absence of wrath and passion. It is not servile submissiveness. It is not uh, cowed nor frightened. How do how does one get humble? To me, one must constantly be reminded of his dependence on whom, uh, on whom dependent on the Lord. How reminded? How remind oneself by real, constant, worshipful, grateful prayer. I love that. This is, I mean, I think when you look at what meekness is, it can be easy to just say that it's, uh, in a worldly sense, I think it's easy to look at meekness and say it's weak or timid, but it's clearly not. I think that's not, I don't think, attributes of Christ, you would say he was weak or timid. Clearly he was not. Instead, what he did was he boldly denounced evil. He bravely advanced righteous works, but it's a combination of that with a consistent mildness of temper and absence of wrath and passion. And so it can be hard to say, well, how are you supposed to be bravely and boldly denouncing evil and advancing righteous works without rising up contention? Because surely it will come. Yeah, Satan will try to stir up the anger of the people and be mad about the way that we stand up for righteousness. But if we do it in a way with the spirit and boldly and bravely, but also with a mildness of temper and absence of wrath, we will not be. We will be the peacemakers. Other people may be the provocateurs. But we'll still be. We can still be peacemakers. Uh, moving in, actually, about uh, peacemakers. President, uh, or sorry, excuse me, Elder Bruce R. McConkie said, "Peacemakers, in the full sense, only those who believe and spread the fullness of the gospel are peacemakers. Within the perfect meaning of this beatitude, the gospel is the message of peace to all mankind. Children of God, those who have been adopted, those who have been adopted into the family of God as a result of their devotion to the truth, and I would add by covenant." By such a course, they become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So the gospel is what? The message of peace. Who is its captain? The prince of peace. The true peacemakers. To be a true peacemaker, what does it mean? You, As you read from Elder McConkie here, it is, it is to proclaim the gospel. 
That's what it means to be a peacemaker. It means to teach the gospel of peace and invite others to come unto Jesus Christ. And in this sense, you start to see, look around us, look around the world today and all the happenings and contention, whether it be large scale or small scale. What is the answer? The answer is and always has been the atonement of Jesus Christ and his gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ centered around his atoning sacrifice is what and is the only thing that will bring humanity together, that will bring people from different creeds, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different countries, tongues. It's the only thing that can bring us at one. It is because it is his atoning, to unifying power. And the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching that gospel is what can bring that about. Uh, and I think that's where the world maybe misses the mark a bit in trying to solve problems through programs and social initiatives and governments. Those are great, but they can also then be twisted and turned for not being so great. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is never never changing and is all-powerful because of his atonement. And it is what will cure the the ills that fa- that face us. Do we want racial harmony? Yes, we do. How can that be possible? Through the atonement of Jesus Christ and His gospel that is preached by and uh, lives in His church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. That's just a note here that I have about um, in Third Nephi chapter twelve. The, the scripture about lighting, uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth. And then he goes on and says, uh, I say unto you, I give unto you to be the light of this people. Uh, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And what's interesting here is if you compare and you go to the Greek version of the of this sermon in Matthew, the word that's used for the light, uh, is, and, and you said it on, he says, do Men light a candle and put it under a bushel. The word candle is not even there, really. It's The, the Greek translation actually is... Um, what is the word? Lamp. But it's also used in, this, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and it specifically is used in talking about the menorah in the temple. And so, what light is it? It seems to be referencing the light that comes from the temple that we are meant to be that same light. Uh, and if you if you think about my, if you've listened to the podcast, I talked about light last week as Christ is the light of the world and there was this darkness at his death and, the, and compared it to our day now and that the temples are closed and where's the light supposed to come from? And the conclusion I came to in my study for me was that we are supposed to be the light. And here again, as I studied this week, I, I think I, I felt that that was reaffirmed in that the light that the, the the word that Christ used in talking about the light and light setting it up is the same word that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in talking about the light that comes from the temple that we can be that same light our light can add to the light of the world and it is possible when we remember as Christ will tell us next week in 3 Nephi 18 that he is the light that we are to hold up. We don't have to try to create that light ourselves, but that he is that light. Um, in talking about uh, the salt, uh, that we are the salt of the earth, Elder Carlos E. Ace said, when men are called into mine everlasting gospel and covenant with an everlasting covenant, they are counted as the salt of the earth and savor of men. The word savor denotes taste, pleasing flavor, interesting quality, and high repute. A world-around chemist told me that salt will not lose its savor with age. Savor is lost through mixture and contamination. Similarly, priesthood power does not dissipate with age. It, too, is lost through mixture and contamination. If we were to be the salt of the earth, that means we have to be separate from the rest of the world. What contaminates us? How how do we lose our savor and uh, be of no more of worth? By contamination. By delusion. That's how.
I'm going to jump back to light and um, share something that Elder Hales said. Growing up on Long Island in New York, I understand how vital light was to those traveling in darkness on the open sea. How dangerous is a fallen lighthouse? How devastating is a lighthouse who it, whose light has failed? We who have the gift of the Holy Ghost must be true to its prompting so that we can be light to others. Let your light so shine before men, said the Lord, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. We never know who may be depending on us. And as the Savior said, we know not, but that they will return and repent and come unto me with full purpose of heart. And I shall heal them, and you shall be the means by bringing salvation unto men. And that is this. So this is a hard thing to do because uh, in breaking apart Christ's visit to the the, the Nephite people, because Elder Hales there quoted from Third Nephi chapter eighteen. I mentioned last, I think last week that Mormon and and uh, putting this together, he was very specific in talking about time and his son Moroni also in time frame. But there's this kind of ambiguity of how long Christ was here and exactly when it happened. And there's just when he when I when I'm talking when I say here, I mean in the Book of Mormon when he's talking to the people here in the land of bountiful. And the the sermon on the mount, the sermon at the temple, and we're starts in third Nephi chapter 11 it doesn't really end he he goes and comes back a couple a few times we don't really know but the things that he teaches are of eternal importance and they're so intertwined that it starts in third Nephi 11 and doesn't end until he leaves toward at the end of third Nephi and so it's hard to to say it's hard you get more out of this, I guess what I'm saying is, when you study the, the entire visit of Christ at once. It's one of the reasons I am daunted, like I said. I feel a little overwhelmed in trying to convey a message to you and convey what Christ said. Um, and so I'm just going to continue going on and, and sharing some quotes from things that I came across this week that I really liked. <laughs> uh, so, in talking about um, the law of Moses being fulfilled. Uh, you know what? I'll actually come back to that in in the next episode because there's some relations there. So I'll, I'll skip that quote for now. And we'll talk about uh, have, being angry with your brother. The New Testament accounts. So the, in Matthew and um, see so yeah, in Matthew five where it talks about don't not being angry with your brother. Uh, it says whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger. The Book of Mormon's version does not say without cause. It's very, it just says, uh, by saying to you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of his judgment. No cause is necessary. It doesn't matter. Don't be angry with, with those, with those you deal with. Who is your brother, right? And I think we can answer that the same way the Savior said, answered the question, who is my neighbor? And then he gave the parable of the good Samaritan said, and asked who, which of these is, is the neighbor? And they said, oh, obviously the Samaritan is. And Christ's point was, we're, we are everyone's neighbor. We are everyone's brother. Avoid anger. It goes back to the, what's in our heart and the contention and meekness and see how this these things all really connect and they build on each other. In talking about um, taking upon us our cross and denying ourselves of ungodliness, Neil A. Maxwell said, The daily taking upon the cross means daily denying ourselves of the appetites of the flesh. By emulating the Master who endured temptations but gave no heed to them, we too can, in, can live in a world filled with temptations. Such are common to man. Of course, Jesus noticed the tremendous temptations that came to him, but he did not process and reprocess them. Instead, he rejected them promptly. If we entertain temptations, soon they begin in soon they begin entertaining us turning these unwanted lodges lodgers away at the doorstep of the mind is one of the uh, one way of giving no heed besides these who would these would be lodgers are actually barbarians who if admitted can be evicted only with great trauma stop it at the door that's what he means by taking up our cross and denying ourselves of all ungodliness is yes we're going to be tempted yes there is temptation all around us but don't give it at the time of day it's natural and human to be tempted, but put it out of our minds. Take up that cross. Deny ourselves of all ungodliness. 
Because as Elder Maxwell said, if we allow it into our mind and into our life, it's much harder to kick it out than it would have been to just turn them away, turn it away uh, from from the outset. I'm going to close. I've been talking about 3512 for quite a while here, um, and I want to move on to chapters 13 and 14. Uh, a couple of things I just want to make note of. Who saw that verses 31 and 32 talks about marriage. Um, it seems very clear that this is talking to a covenant people at a temple who would understand a higher law, and he's teaching them a higher law of marriage. Um, I encourage you, there, there are many quotes that I came across that are very helpful in this regard. They're not hard to find. Um, if you search, I don't know, Institute Manual, for example, or just on the church's website, there are many quotes that I found that are reassuring and, re- and reaffirming of, they both reaffirm what Christ taught, but also reassure us uh, in ways about what Christ was teaching uh, in, t- in teaching this. And then uh, the last thing I do want to talk about is, I would that you should be perfect in, in verse 48. James E. Faust said, Perfection is an eternal goal. While we cannot be perfect in mortality, striving for it is a commandment which ultimately through the atonement uh, we can keep. And President Kimball said, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now that is an attainable goal. We will be not be exalted. We shall not teach our... Dis- uh, we will not be exalted. We shall not reach our destination unless we are perfect. And now is the best time in the world to start toward perfection. I have little patience with those who say, Oh, nobody's perfect. The implication being, so why try? Of course, no one is wholly perfect, but we find some who are a long way up the ladder. So it is possible to work towards that perfection now. Now, this is one of the things I want to point out. In Greek, the word perfect, it has more of a connotation of wholeness and completeness. Be, therefore, whole and complete. Okay? And so that's, that is used, and, but here's a, there's not a, difference in the third Nephi and Matthew version here. The word is still perfect. And if it was meant to be whole and and complete, then I think perhaps Joseph Smith would have been transla- translated that a different way. We would have a different thing. And, and we know that that's a possibility because the rest of the chapter has a bunch of differences. And the rest of the sermon has a bunch of differences. And the Isaiah verses have differences. Christ is commanding us, make no bones about it, there is no way around it. He's commanding us to be perfect. Now, Elder Holland has given a talk recently, talked about be therefore perfect eventually, and that's true. But as President Kimball said, we need to try now. And there will be moments in life where we have flashes of that perfection. Moments when we are Christ-like, when we have the Spirit guiding us, when we are whole and perfect and our sins are forgiven. And the idea is to string those moments together and make them longer and longer. And absolute perfection in this life, not possible. Striving for that perfection is possible and is a commandment. Uh, I like uh, C.S. Lewis's quote about this, where he basically just, he said that when he commanded us to be perfect, he meant it. But his goal and his intention is to make us and to turn us into creatures who can commi- who can keep that commandment. That is what the gospel is about. That's the covenant path is to change us. It changes our nature into a creature who can keep the commandment to be perfect. I want to move on. Let's move on to uh, chapter 13. So a few of the things that Christ teaches in chapter 13, uh, how to pray. Uh, He gives us kind of a blueprint using the Lord's Prayer, not to say those exact things, right? But to, as a blueprint of what a prayer should be like. He also teaches us to uh, do our righteous acts in private and not to be seen of men and to, to kind of flaunt them uh, and to focus on uh, on things that matter most, on the eternal things. Uh, he also teaches us to, uh, well, like, I mean, kind of, in a couple different ways that he teaches that principle, this, this focus on what matters most and not worrying about other things. First, he says, uh, he talks about, I would that you should be, uh, excuse me, do not do do not your righteous acts openly. So, uh, President Monson told a story once about uh, going to a hospital and visiting someone. And behind the reception desk, there was, you know, the names of all the people who had donated to 
expand the hospital and build this this wing. And there was all these names of people who had contributed a hundred thousand dollars or more. And then on there was uh, one spot that said uh, there was one like one separate plaque that said anonymous. President Monson said, I smiled and wondered who the unnamed contributor could have been. Surely he or she experienced a quiet joy unknown to any other. And he used that as an example of how that person still did something good, but didn't have to have their name up for everyone to know that they did something good. Christ, what's interesting to me, I say that a lot, what's interesting to me. It is interesting to me, though. I think of like, I don't know, the... Uh, the widow of Nain, right? That we have a record of it, but to me, it stands out as this type of service that Christ didn't do it for for acclamation, right? Uh, obviously, we can through, look through the New Testament and we can see that that wasn't his purpose. But the widow, the story of the widow of Nain stands out to me because he and his disciples were not close to Nain. Nain was not on the way to anything. It was it's a it's a foothill community, so meaning where they had been to where he had to get to to be to Nain was entirely uphill. We have in the record that in the New Testament that the travel time was one night because they were there, they were somewhere else, and then they he gets to Nain in the morning of the next day. So he had to have walked all night long um, to get there, and he gets there just in time. Uh, for the widow of Nain's son's funeral, the son had died, um, and now it's been a several a few days, and now they're doing this procession of, of funeral, such as was their custom. And the widow, okay, so in the name widow, the widow of Nain's story means she doesn't have a husband. Her last son, only son, now has died, so she no longer has a male child to take care of her. In the society that they lived in. She would have been cast out, downtrodden. She was like had this just like terrible situation because she couldn't own property, um, and so she would just have to be. Essentially, she would have been uh, becoming a beggar. Christ shows up at the moment. There's a lot of things that I love about the story. He shows up at the moment of her crisis. It's you know the the eleventh hour. Things you can learn, but he shows up. Without fanfare, without being, um, you know, welcomed into Nain, he just walks in in the morning during this thing, raises the the, the son from the dead. It's one of the three uh, people that we have a record of him he, uh, raising from the dead in his life. Raises him from the dead and solves this widow's problem, and then you know, there's a short communication and, and interaction there, and then he goes back to what he was doing before. But he didn't do it out of, you know, to to be acclimated to, to, for the acclamation. Nain was probably, by historians' best recollection or best like estimates, was like a town of like maybe a hundred people. Like it's this tiny little like shepherd type community, super small. But it wasn't about that. It wasn't about the fame. It wasn't about the glory. It was about that widow. It was about her. It was about her personal experience with the Savior. And as as disciples of Christ, as ministering brothers and sisters, that should be our goal. It shouldn't be to be recognized by the ward or by the person that we're serving. It should be to foster a connection between the person that we're serving and Jesus Christ, their Savior. That's what it should all be about. He teaches about uh, how to pray. And he says, after this manner, I want you to pray. But he also says, don't avoid vain repetitions. So it's interesting to me that in the same chapter that he says, avoid vain repetitions, he gives us this example of a prayer. And the rest of the Christian world essentially has said, hey, that's the Lord's Prayer. We should all say it vainly and repetitiously. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Elder Joseph B. Worthland said, our prayers become hollow when we say similar words in similar ways over and over so often that the words become more and more a recitation than a communication. That is what the Savior described as vain repetitions. This is a hard thing. It takes mental effort and energy. Prayer is meant to be, read the Bible dictionary, prayer is meant to be a form of work. And we should, 
and it's hard. Our will is not his will. And the purpose of prayer is to align our will with his will. It's going to take effort. It's going to take work. It's going to take thought to, to consider how we're praying, what we're saying, receive communication back. Prayer is not meant to be a one-way, just like, hey, give me all these things. Thanks. See you. Bye. It's a two-way communication. And that takes effort. One of my favorite parts of chapter 13 is, and I've mentioned it in this week's episodes, I mentioned it last week, it's about the light of the body is the eye. It's where is our focus, right? And that previous verse is, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. President Oaks said, the Savior taught that we should not lay up treasures on earth, but should lay up treasures in heaven. In light of the ultimate purpose of the great plan of happiness, I believe that the ultimate treasures on earth and in heaven and are our children and our posterity. Where should our focus and energy be? On something that is of eternal consequence. And what is of eternal consequence? Our lives, our spiritual life, and the spiritual life of our family and our and our familial relationships. I think of the story of Job. A uh, quick recap. He was pretty well off, had a lot of property, um, you know, had, I think, seven kids, and then lost it all, everything. Uh, buildings collapse, animals die. He obviously gets, you know, sick and gets leprosy and um, things of that nature. Uh, he never curses God, right? That's the story. That's the whole point is that he stays faithful at the end, uh, I don't remember the numbers, and I'm not going to look them up. Just you'll get the you'll get the sense of the story if I just kind of recap it in broad strokes here. At the end of the story, he has you know if he had two goats at the beginning, which he had more than that, he then at the end had four, and if he had eight cows at the end, he had sixteen. So everything that he had at the beginning is doubled in the end of the story. And what's interesting to those, if you read, he had seven kids at the beginning, and then he. Um, has seven more children at the end. And you're like, well, everything got doubled except that. Unless you realize and know the truth, the families are eternal. And the, although those seven children in the beginnings died, they were still his children. They were still his in eternity. And so he had 14. Everything is doubled. And uh, that the eternal nature of that story is lost if you don't understand the eternal nature of families. Well, some of it, not all of it, obviously, but some of it. That subtle uh, difference between his children and these other worldly things, right? And it's great that he was blessed and prospered in a in a worldly sense because of his faithfulness. And that, that can happen. But the wicked also can prosper uh, financially, and they can focus on other things. But what's important is where our focus really lies, because that where our, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if we focus on the wrong things, and if our focus is not on the, in the right place, then it, our entire body will be full of darkness. And when the Titan comes to stand in the presence of the light of the world and, to, and be judged, our darkness will not like that light. But if our focus has been correct, if it's been on our family, and on Jesus Christ, and our whole body is full of light, His light, then standing in His presence will feel normal and natural. All right, I've already gone longer in this episode than I wanted to. I'm not going to like really rush through things, but I am going to chop out some of uh, chapter 14. Here are the highlights that I want to talk about chapter 14. Judging, uh, asking through prayer, and the golden rule. So first about judging, because, and this is one of my favorite talks, actually. It's from 1999 called Judge Not and Judging. It's from President, uh, well, then Elder Oaks, now President Oaks. He's also actually talked about it in a couple of other talks, this topic of how are we supposed to reconcile. We, we're told, judge not that ye be not judged. And then we're told, judge ye righteous judgment. And so it's, it's the whole point is, how do we reconcile that? Uh one side note that's interesting to me, again, I say that, but it is. It's interesting, okay? Uh, President Oaks was an attorney, uh, obviously dealing with law and judgments and things of that nature, and then also was uh, on the Supreme Court 
uh, in the state of Utah and had to judge righteously. He had to be given facts and then ju- make judgments. And so I can see why this topic would be of particular interest to him. He said, I've been puzzled that some scriptures command us not to judge and others instruct us that we should judge and even tell us how to do it. But as, I've, I, as I have studied these passages, I have... Co- become convinced that these seemingly contradictory directions are consistent when we view them with the perspective of eternity. The key is to understand that there are two kinds of judging, final judgment, which we are forbidden to make, and intermediate judgments, which we are directed to make, but upon righteous principles. First, righteous judgment must by, by definition be intermediate. Second, a righteous judgment will be guided by by the Spirit of the Lord, not by anger, revenge, or jealousy, or self-interest. Third, to be righteous, an, an intermediate judgment must be within our stewardship. Fourth, we should, if possible, refrain from judging until we have adequate knowledge of the facts. We should be judging if something is bad for us and bad for our family. That We can judge that. If, if there are people that we don't want to be around our children and around our family and around us, we should judge that. We should judge it righteously. And President Oaks get, lays out some ways to do that. But that. And that is not judging them and saying, you're condemned to hell. That we that type of judgment to say that they are lost and forsaken and and that they're terrible people whatever that's not for us. But judging there is there uh, I don't know maybe I'm not making any sense it makes sense in my brain but there are two distinct types of judgments and I think President Oaks simplified it there pretty eloquently by saying there's a final judgment to say like where's your final place are you a good or bad person yada yada that's not for us. The intermediate type of judgments we are commanded to make and to make them righteously. Uh, second thing, asking through prayer. President James E. Faust talking about you know, verses 7 through uh, uh, 12. Ask, seek, knock. If you ask of your fathers on earth, they give you. President uh, Faust said, No earthly authority can separate us from the direct ac- direct access to our Creator. There can never be a mechanical or electronic failure when we pray. Pause. The Wi-Fi router to, to God never goes down. Connection's always there. Is it always strong? No, that's not him, though. That's us. It's always there. It is always, always there. Uh, President Faust continued, There is no limit on the number of times or how long we can pray each day. There is no quota of how many needs we wish uh, to pray, it's sorry. There is no quota of how many needs we wish to pray for, and we wish to pray for in each prayer. We do not need to go through secret- secretaries or make an appointment to reach the throne of grace. He is reachable at any time and any place. Think about a worldly sense. You want to talk to someone powerful, quote unquote, important at a company. Like I own a small company, and to get to me, you have to talk to someone else most of the time. You call. I'm not the one that typically is like answering. Unless you have my specific line, which very few people have, you gotta like talk to someone else to get to me, right? This gatekeeper, God, who is the God and the Creator of the universe, does not have that. We go directly to Him. You have His direct number. You have His direct line, and He's there for you at all times, anytime you need it, for as long as you need. I love it. Uh, and then about the golden rule, President Nelson said, Jesus taught the golden rule, saying, All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. This principle is found in nearly every major religion. Others, such as Confucius and Aristotle, have also taught it. After all, the gospel did not begin with the birth of the babe in Bethlehem. It is everlasting. It was proclaimed in the beginning to Adam and Eve. Portions of the gospel have been preserved in many cultures. Even the heathen mythologies have been enriched by fragments of truth from earlier dispensations. Uh, wherever it is found and however it is expressed, the golden rule encompasses the moral code of the kingdom of God. It forbids interference by one with the rights of another. It is equally binding upon nations and associations and individuals. With compassion and forbearance, it replaces the retaliatory reactions of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If it were to stay on that old and unproductive path, we would be but blind and toothless. So I'm going to end there for the day and for the, for the episode, because here's the thing. Remember what I said this discourse that he gives really beginning chapter 11, it builds line upon line, precept upon precept. It's, it's, um, as it grows. And we, we like to say like, Oh, he capped it off in chapter five because he said, be perfect. But he then continued by telling us how, how is he, what, what can we do? What kind of creatures should we be? 
what action should we be taking that will mold us and shape us into different creatures so that we can keep that commandment. He didn't just stop at that. He didn't build up to it and say, that's it. That's the end. He built up to it, said, be therefore perfect, and then continues to teach us. And the beautiful thing is, central to his plan is his atoning sacrifice, and because of it, repentance. Repentance is not the backup plan in case we fail. Repentance is the plan knowing that we will fail. Repentance is part of perfection. As we repent every day and strive to be more like him every day, we will have the spirit more in our life. And that spirit who is, as you recall, a member of the Godhead, will lift us and change us and make us more like the Godhead, more like Jesus Christ, more perfect. And as we do that over a lifetime, as President Kimball said, we'll be closer up, we'll be higher up the ladder than we were when we started. And that's the point of life, is that progress. And Christ is in, in teaching the Nephites and in teaching us, that's what he's teaching us. He's teaching us how to take that our, our puny little paws and reach up one rung higher. And when we're up one rung higher, he's teaching us how to reach up one rung higher. It's the covenant path. That's why President Nelson implores us to keep on the covenant path. That's why President Nelson has implored us to hear him. Conferences in two weeks. Have we all been studying and preparing the way that we prepared for April conference to hear the word of the Lord? Because undoubtedly, he, if we are prepared, he will teach us something that will help us to climb that ladder just a, just a small bit to reach up higher towards him. Thanks for listening to this episode. The next episode to conclude the week uh, will cover chapters 15 and 16. I look forward to chatting with you then.